What's going on, everybody? And welcome into the 121st episode of the Crazy One Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Stephen Gates, and this is the show where we talk about creativity, leadership, design, and everything else that helps to empower creative people. Now remember, you can listen to all the shows, get the show notes, which will be especially important for this one, and a whole lot more. Just head over to thecrazyone.com. It's the words the crazy and the number one.com. Also, make sure you hit the subscribe button on your favorite podcast platform. And hey, always the reminder, do me a favor, go out and leave me a review. I know a lot of you listen to the show, a lot of really good reviews. Definitely not as many as people are listening to it. It's the only payment I ever ask. So do me a favor and go do that. And as always, if you have any questions, you just want to keep up with my adventures or anything else like that, you can always follow me on Twitter or Instagram, and you can follow the show on LinkedIn or Facebook. Now, for me, the past six months have been a fascinating exploration into what honestly has been a new perspective on design thinking. What's really interesting is where that perspective came from. Because I think if you followed this show for any amount of time, you know, I go out and talk to chefs and street artists and tattoo artists and like all sorts of different people who share the creative condition to sort of get their perspective on creativity and how do they think about things and approach things. Now, as you probably saw from the title of the show, it's where the inspiration for this episode and for that last six months of work came from that's so surprising. Because look, I can honestly say with a pretty high degree of certainty that I never thought that I would have learned a lot and gotten a new perspective on design from the U.S. government, the U.S. Army specifically. Because, look, the government are the people who have brought us things like million-dollar toilet seats and like a daily master class in leadership paralysis and dysfunction. So how could they be the ones that held the key to looking at design thinking in a whole new way? And as usual... How the hell did I end up falling down that rabbit hole and studying about this anyway? All these answers and more are what we're going to cover in this episode of the show, where I want to go over the basics of the United States Army's design methodology, look at how it's different, and I would argue probably even say better than the design thinking that so many of us know and love, and highlight some of the things that they do differently that I think could make a huge difference with you and your team and your work tomorrow. So, like I said, if you followed the show for any amount of time, the other thing you probably heard about is, you know, my dad was in the United States Army. Specifically, he was a sentinel at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. And you can go back and listen to episode 108, where I'll talk about more about all of that. We're not going to get into that today. Since he passed last October, so about a year and a half ago, I've just become a lot more familiar with the United States Army through... I guess just sort of doing research about him, but I also became a legacy member of the Society of the Honor Guard. So I've just been around a lot more people who have been in the military. And somewhere in there, I started talking to a lieutenant colonel from Fort Bragg, who is part of the United States Army's School of Advanced Military Studies, or SAMS. Uh, Forewarning now, we're probably going to have a much higher than usual number of acronyms and other words in the show, but that's just because of... The military and most companies love to do that. But anyway, in in our talks, he started to tell me about what he kept referring to as ADM, which is the Army's design methodology. And I'll be honest, at first, just hearing the words U.S. Army and design together was something my brain couldn't quite wrap itself around. And as I started to learn more about it, as I started to study it, honestly, I think I got a little upset with myself that I'd never heard about ADM before. 
And I, as I started to ask a lot more people, they had never heard of it either. So I was instantly fascinated to hear that someplace that it is as hierarchical and disciplined as the army can use something as collaborative and organic and different as design thinking. Now, if I'm honest, it was probably also because I've spent too many years on in-house teams. And I look, I think if, if you've ever worked in a company, if you've ever worked on an in-house team, or honestly, even an agency team, not going to lie, the idea of going through a design process and having people actually follow what gets decided without question or drama seemed like some magical dream unicorn land that I just needed to know exist and hear more about because that just seemed so wonderful. As we talked more about ADM, I was really fascinated to hear that the Army was using this from everything from figuring out how much gas does a tank need to get across the desert to figuring out how do you get every person in Afghanistan the ability to vote. These are not simple problems. These are complicated. And I think obviously the problems that any military faces today are increasingly complicated and difficult and not very clear. And so look, I think that that was what became so interesting to me is that these are not simple problems. And this was a process that was not being used by trained designers. So I wanted to know more. I want to understand the methodology, how they taught it, how they figured it out. And how could I use it in my own work? Plus, here again, if I'm being honest, I think the inner sort of like James Bond spy thriller fan in me, kid in me, also just thought it was kind of cool to get emails from the military that said declassified in all caps on it. I don't know why. Maybe just as a guy, you never grow out of the James Bond thing. I don't know. But anyway, so what I want to do is let's start with going through the basics because there's some basic parts to ADM. And I want to look at what they're doing differently. And I also want to look at sort of what, what are they doing that you could learn from. Now, this episode will assume that you know the basics of design thinking, because I'm not going to go back over and cover off on all the basics and do that. If you haven't done that, if you don't know design thinking, if you don't know the basics, then what you're about to hear, some of it may be useful, a lot of it may be confusing. So what I would ask you to do pause this where it is, go back and listen to episodes 33, 34, and 35. Those three episodes go into great detail around the basics of design thinking that I'd learned from working with IDEO, but start there. And I think the other other quick note here, the other preface is, I'm not going to do justice to this material if I try to translate everything into my language. So in some cases, I'm going to use the verbiage that they do. And I just want to be able to say, so in your brain, I'm going to need you to basically probably swap out three words in your head that'll help make everything line up and make more sense to you because I had to do this a little bit. But like I said, I since this isn't my methodology, I want to try to stick as close to the source material as I can so I get it right. So for the purpose of this conversation, whenever I'm going to use a word like commander, just think about leader. Uh, whenever I use a word like staff, that basically is going to mean you or the team, depending on what that is. And whenever I talk about actors, these are people in the process. These are going to be the end consumers of something. These are going to be partners. But like I said, it's just it's just a way to be able to think about this. And now the other thing is before we go all the way down to the rabbit hole, I'm going to put all the source material that I have that was declassified that you can find 
I'm going to put that in the show notes. So that's about an 80-plus page textbook that's publicly available if you know where to look and if the server works that goes into a lot more detail around all of this. So if you find this interesting, you want to dive in, you want to find more, go to thecrazyone.com, go to episode 121. I'll post there two, at least two different PDFs I'll put in there, maybe three if it makes sense. But I'm going to put those in there so you can use that for reference. But on to the basics. So ADM was developed by the United States military at their School of Advanced Military Studies in partnership with the U.S. Army Research Institute for Behavioral and Social Services at Fort Leavenworth. That's a mouthful. The reason why is that it's what we said before, that whenever you think about it, that in sort of the operational environment of today, whenever the Army needs to go do anything in wartime or peacetime, they are facing a range of problems and mission sets that are more varied and more complex than probably they've ever seen before. And I think that's the hard part of this, is that we're talking about forces that face this array of demands that can be geopolitical, they can be social, they can be cultural, they can be military factors, and that all of these things can interact in really unprecedented ways that create problems with more complexity, more uncertainty, more risk than what they'd ever really seen before. But I think more than anything, what the Army really wanted to do is they wanted a methodology that would be an approach that promotes holistic thinking. And how do you know, since we're dealing with these complicated problems, that you're thinking about things thoroughly, you're thinking about it holistically, that, again, you're able to take this and unravel it and figure out what to do. So in March of 2010, in what was called FM 5-0, in the operations process, the Army basically incorporated the concept of design into what they would call their operating doctrine. That really just means what is the process, how do they work, how would you solve problems in the documented way that everybody needs to follow. Now, the interesting thing is that since that introduction 12 years ago of design into the Army doctrine, there's been a lot of really interesting debate about what design is and should it be used in the Army and how should it be used and it, it's interesting because a lot of this in hearing this definitely sounded like a lot of the discussions that I hear in a lot of companies that I've worked at and worked with. But to that end, I think what they've been debating really centers around a few things. Interestingly, some of the things that I heard the most were whether design is new or is it just an expanded version of the mission analysis they already had? Where and how should this fit in with their existing processes? Whether it should be treated as a philosophy or a mindset? Should it be codified and structured into a replicatable process? Again, I think these are all things if you've ever tried to bring design thinking into a company or if you've ever tried to bring it into a team, these are a lot of the same debates that you have. And, and I think it's, it's interesting, again, very, very different contexts, very, very different things they're trying to solve but very similar discussions that are going on. But I think unlike most companies, the interesting thing is that there really is also a lot of agreement around the areas where there have been benefits from design. And I think that's what's been also so interesting is that in so many cases, whenever I've tried to bring design thinking into a company or things like that, it, it almost is put under siege of... Why are we trying to do something differently? This is going to go slower. This is confusing. Can't we just get to a solution right away, right? Like there's so much of that where so much of what you're doing is just trying to fight for its validity and to keep people from just rushing to solutions. 
but here again, I thought there were a lot of really interesting conversations that went on. Because I think a lot of the things I would hear them that they would agree on is that there is a need for a different type of thinking that allows for meaningful insight into what they would describe as unfamiliar, dynamic, and complex situations and problems. That there's a value to approaching these operational problems from multiple perspectives to develop a holistic understanding. And again, not just do it the way so many of us do in a traditional, linear, reductive thinking. Because like I said, that's often the problem that so many of us have as creatives is how do you not get somebody to just go in a straight line and run to the solution? Well, again, they, they see and actually value that multiple perspectives and ways of solving a problem are valuable. That there is a need for continuous reflection and learning and reframing of problem spaces based on new information and changes in the environment. So they also know that problems aren't static that these are things that move and evolve. And especially you know, when you think about what some of these situations are, and, and it's interesting to me because one of the biggest complaints or one of the biggest knocks I always hear on design thinking from so many people is, oh, well, it's slow. It's going to make us go slower. It's going to you know, take too much time. And it's interesting because also at the same point, those are those people who make jokes about, well, why can't we just do the first solution? This isn't a life or death problem. Well, this, what, the way they're using it actually is life or death problems, and they still find the time to be able to do this. But I think that they also see that ADM is not, should not be separated from the planning that they're doing, that it represents conceptual components of planning and should be integrated and supported by detailed planning, that the two can go hand in hand. Now, I think for a lot of creatives, that's a lesson we can learn, that there are outputs and you can do planning and that you can have that run alongside the conceptual process. But I think they've also seen that ADM has the potential to provide important benefits for leadership and their staff, for those commanders, that they can avoid an unintended or second or third order effect that can happen from doing something without really understanding what is developing or understanding interdependencies or understanding the operational environment. That And again, I think this is something I talk to so many companies about, that individually good decisions can make for collectively bad experiences. And I think that's what they're talking about here is that second and third order effect is that if we make an individually good decision, we are part of a larger team, a larger company, a larger army, a larger environment, and that our decision ripples out and affects other people. So we need to understand that. And I think you also see that ADM really supports the notion that fully understanding a system and to really understand it, you have to interact with it and then assess it in an iterative manner. For me, this is where you talk to teams about how you have to live your problem, how you can't just understand things conceptually, why for so many of us, customers should be the source of truth. This is their version of that. That And again, this is part of it that well, they will be very deliberate that you have to get out there and actually understand what's going on, not just hear about it. And the last thing that I thought was really interesting was that they know that ADM should always be grounded in reality, that this isn't science fiction, this isn't hope, that to be able to produce an executable plan, understanding alone is not enough. The products of what ADM does have to connect to detailed plans. They have to be grounded in reality. They have to be something that people can actually do. So I think this is sort of, again, their version of whenever you look at what we need to do needs to be feasible, desirable, and profitable. This is their version of that. So 
a lot of these, I think, are tenants and are constructs that are in a lot of our companies, a lot of our teams. But it's seeing it really, I guess, documented, seeing it valued, seeing it executed, and that there are these sort of open debates and discussions around what works. It's really interesting. And I think, you know, that's one of the reasons why they were able to find this alignment and have this success is the stakes of their work are so immediate and real. And again, they understand that there's real consequences to this, where I think sometimes in business, if you launch a feature and it doesn't work, what's the real harm, right? Like it's nobody's really going to get hurt by it or anything. So again, I think it's just they view it those stakes differently. And I found in teams and businesses that are at their best, this is a place where I really think that they feel like there is a real threat. There's a threat to their future. There's a focusing event like a recession or a layoff or a new competitor. There's something that puts everyone into this unified and action-oriented mindset. And I think that's one of the first things that is different or interesting is that everyone in the military is already in that unified and action-oriented mindset, which is why they're able to get, I think, better results and are able to use this process a lot better just because, again, mindset makes such a difference. But let's get more into the details. And I think you'll see... What they are doing from is different from maybe traditional the design thinking that we all know. Now, their methodology is broken down into three phases. And, and again, we'll sort of quickly touch on the highlights of each of these. If you want to be able to go into more, there's a lot of documentation and diagramming and a lot of things like that. I'll put those PDFs up there. You can go in. There's a lot more detail there. But the three parts that they do are they frame the environment, they frame the problem, and they frame the solution. Now, framing the environment, this is the first activity in ADM, and this is not something that I have ever seen appear in a traditional design thinking process. Now, what this does is this involves an in-depth understanding of the current operational environment and then envisioning what environment they want. And they do this both by describing through a graphic representation and a narrative So basically think about that means just they use visuals and they write it up as well to be able to demonstrate what's the current environment and then what's the one that they're going to need. Now, they develop that understanding by mapping out a number of variables. And here again, I think it's interesting to see the depth and diligence that they go through because this is probably more than what I've ever seen at most companies. Because what they do is they look at variables like key actors. So again, meaning what are people? What are opposing forces? What are other people that are out there that are doing something? What are circumstances? What are relationships that are out there between political, military, economic, social, information, infrastructure, and physical environments? So they're looking at all of these things in a lot of different ways. Now, what happens is that most of the staff begins visualizing the current state by doing a brainstorming session that focuses on each one of those variables. So at one at a time, they'll go through, pull apart. So again, what is the political environment, the military environment, the economic environment, social, informational, infrastructure, physical? And they're going to start to be able to do each one of those. Now, once that brainstorming is done, they put a designated team together that begins the process of then mind mapping to categorize each actor or each variable to really be able to combine similar items 
or remove insignificant people, right? So that this is, as you know, there are some of the things where there's similarity, there's overlap. There's other things where you've got to basically take the signal from the noise. And maybe there's some people that are making a lot of noise. Maybe they're very visible, but it's just not a real part of the problem or the environment that needs to get solved for. Now, I think from there, the last thing they do is they do an exercise called how to how the operational environment may trend. And what this is, is this is an exercise that looks at how will the environment, how, how is it going to trend basically without any intervention? And so they can essentially decide as this is a problem that's worth solving. Because it, this is kind of a go-no-go, I guess, would be the best way to describe it. That if we get involved and we do these things, the environment will improve to make it favorable for us to be able to get done what we need. Or... We also say, look, if we don't do anything, if we don't get involved at all, what's going to happen? Which way is it going to trend? And I think all of this allows commanders and staff to really set boundaries for their thinking and create a shared understanding and depict reality before they even develop any ways of solving the problem. I think at this point, they acknowledge that even if they think they know what the problem is, if they don't take the time to do this sort of diligence, if they don't take the time to really understand and map all of this out, that then they're not going to know that they're solving the right problems. Now, I think a lot of this obviously has very clear parallels as we talk about product, as we talk about research, as we talk about how do we know we're solving the right problems. But like I said, it it's not that that's a foreign concept. I've just never seen a company take the time to map the environment and to do it with this level of diligence. Because most companies jump in at the second stage, which is framing the problem. And here, this is basically pretty much what you would more expect or come to know, where the objective of framing the problem is to generate a narrative of the problem statement. Here again, supported by graphics and a deeper understanding of the operational environment that was acquired from that environmental framing exercise before it. So we can use that. Basically, the environment is the guardrails. And let's look at what do we think the problems are. Now, for them, successful problem solving requires going beyond what they would describe as a linear cause and effect in terms of how they address the problem. Because what they want to do is to find problems really that are looking at how do you understand the in the, the sort of, what would you say, the, the relationships between and the connectivity between the different parts of these systems. Because for them, they really feel like if they can identify the correct problem, then it really is something that clarifies a lot of what's going on. But I think they also understand that there is a level of uncertainty where as that increases, they know that the commanders and their staff have to continually assess and reframe what that problem is going to be. They have to do new experiments. They have to come up with you know, new problems and new solutions that for them, it also isn't that that problem statement is static. And here again, I think this is often something that I think a lot of us know or understand. Now, obviously, the problems that they're dealing with can be more dynamic and fast changing. But what I would say is, you know, for too many companies, the problem is, they start out at the beginning of the year, you do your roadmap planning, you look at it for an entire year, and then you'll come back and look at it for next year. And I think if you've ever operated in that environment, you know that that length of time between revisiting what's going on 
things have changed. And if you're a process and if you, there's an awareness of that, again, you often tend to launch products or put messages out there that don't resonate. So again, I think it's just, it's interesting to see that step, but again, some of the attention they give it makes it feel a little different. And then the third and final activity of ADM is framing the solution. And in this case, what they want to do is they want to exploit this newfound understanding of the environmental frame, the problem frame, and then generate a broad operational approach that includes an initial commander's intent for planning and guidance. Now, we'll talk about commander's intent here in a minute, but basically what that is, is it's where the commanders are very, are very diligent and very clear around what do they want to get solved and what is their involvement in the problem going to be. Now, I think here is that this sort of operational approach really identifies things like resources. It gives them, I think, both focus and boundaries for developing courses of action in this decision-making process. And so, again, I think it it's interesting that even they're willing to do some much more sort of real-time solutioning. And again, it's how do you balance what the teams can decide while also accounting for really that sort of higher level command, headquarter, direction, and risk acceptance. So really defining and saying, okay, look, these are this is the overarching vision, the overarching direction, what we need to accomplish. This is what we want you to do. And this is basically how much risk are you able to take? And here again, just it's, it's the ability to be deliberate about this, that I think a lot of teams may try it or they may see, but it, it's actually spelling this out. And so here again, they like to do this through having a narrative approach and graphics as well. So it's, again, it's interesting because you would think most of the time this would be written. They're very deliberate around making visuals as well. Now, I think here, the thing that's interesting is that the doctrine does not provide a prescribed method for constructing that solution or that operational approach. I think it recommends that the design team consider the the sort of different operational elements as sort of a framework for guiding its development. But there again, they really recognize that this is where you need to have the freedom. So while I think there's a fair amount of rigor that's built into framing the environment and the problem, how you bring it to life and because of the dynamic nature of this, they're actually prescriptive in saying we're not going to be that prescriptive. But I think it's this continuously reframing the solution where I think it really keeps it so that the commanders and staff don't isolate those proposed solutions from the bigger knowledge that's gained from the problem and it's gained from the environment. So again, there's a lot of talk back and forth. There's a lot of reassessment. There's a lot of sort of a very continuous, interesting dynamic dance between all these parts to be able to then finally get to the execution, to be able to sort of get to whatever the solution is. But that level of trust and dynamic nature, I thought was just really, really interesting. And like I said, those are just sort of the the highlights of it. There's a lot more detail into what that goes into around what the specific steps and parts are. It's like I said, I think for, for a lot of us, if you've done design thinking, it, it didn't feel like going into how those nuanced things were different was gonna be quite as interesting. But what I did want to do is I did want to hit on, there are really sort of six bigger themes or bigger things that I think you could take away from all this that I thought were interesting that I did want to spend a little bit of time on because I think these six things are things we all could learn from. The first one I mentioned a little bit, but I think that the first one is taking the time to understand the environment 
before the problem. Because I think if we're honest, we know that most companies fail because they address symptoms of a problem without really understanding its complexity. They probably use inadequate concepts to try to solve it. More than anything, I just think, right, like they just fail to find the right problem or they just want to jump right to the solution. Because figuring that out is seen as time consuming. And no matter how many times I would say, you know, if you think doing it right is expensive, try doing it wrong. The number of times and teams that have been a part of that still just want to do those things. But I think this is so important because most problems are way more complicated than we give them credit for. And like I said, I think for so many of us, we see the time to be able to work this out as being slow or ineffective or something that we just, again, like, can't we just do it and figure it out? And I think the fact that ADM not only takes the time to understand the problem, but before that, they take the time to understand the environment and visualize a better one is something I've never seen a team do. And I think every company has environmental problems, whether that's external, like a business environment or a culture, whether it's internal, like a leadership hierarchy or politics or business roadmaps or goals or conflicting goals or roadmaps or any of those sort of things. We all have that and it's a part of the problem. And, and I think for so many of us, we just get so caught up in the wanting to do that I think in many cases, we lose sight of the fact that it's only great solutions are the result of great problems, well-defined problems, well-defined environments. And that especially the more complicated they are, the more that needs to happen. And it just, it was really interesting to see them recognize that and to be able to literally add a step on before that to get that right. I think the other thing that they're really good at is that they get the team size and roles right. Because I think a rule of thumb that's offered by a lot of the experienced commanders and planners is to include what they basically would say would be six to nine people for the core team. And that's it. And that outside of that, if you need more people, you can bring in subject matter experts as you need to. But anything more than six to nine people will start to paralyze the process. It will start to slow it down. It starts to become too cumbersome. There are too many people that need to be involved. And it was interesting because to me, I've always said, like, I, I never want to run a brainstorm with more than 10 people. And this seems to align with that. But I would argue they're maybe even a little bit stricter at six to nine. And the other thing that they do is as that team of six to nine people come together, they are very deliberate about the roles of each members of that team. Now, I think the commanders obviously will decide which roles are the most necessary, but the ones that I saw that came up a lot that was sort of interesting was they would assign people to do specific things. They would have someone who it was just their responsibility to capture the discussion. So again, how do we, are we sure that we are getting everything, capturing what's said, putting it down? They have somebody who captures the ideas in a visual form. So again, somebody who's writing it, somebody who's drawing it, somebody who's sketching, somebody who's in charge of doing the visuals for that. They have someone to think about and develop metrics. So again, how could we test this? How could we develop insights? How could we look at this? Somebody who's responsible for that. They have somebody to lead and monitor just the process in general. So this is the person to make sure they're doing all the steps the right way. A really interesting one is they actually have somebody who is assigned to play devil's advocate. And they have a very specific role of questioning assumptions. And that's their entire job, is that if somebody makes an assumption and if it's not based in fact, the devil's advocate is there to make sure that that is questioned and drawn out. And finally, they have somebody who manages the information 
or sort of the current operational constraints. And they're really looking at the feasibility of the design concepts as they emerge. Because for them, you can't come up with an idea that's just science fiction. It's fine if it pushes it. It's fine if it's going to be, again, a different way of thinking. It just can't be science fiction. Now, I think obviously some of these roles exist on most teams, but some don't. And for those that rarely exist, I think like a role like Devil's Advocate or something like that, it's an interesting thing to think about because I think for so many of us, maybe we all try to play Devil's Advocate because we think no one is assigned to it. But having those sort of roles, again, clearly defined and pulled apart that way was interesting and different to me. The other one is I think there it was a, there was some definitely some interesting discussion I heard around understanding what type of environment or what type of problem you're dealing with. Now, I'm, I'm always somebody who tends to get very hung up on words and what they mean, and it was interesting to see them do a similar thing, but they did it with the words complicated and complex. And I think it's interesting to hear the Army talk about problems as complicated versus complex. It's a small thing, but again, I think the understanding of what each one means and how to understand the problem that you are going into and what its impact will be on resources, how dynamic the problem is, a lot of different things was interesting. So I'd heard this story from it was a commander named General Perkins. And I think he would talk about complicated versus complex in an interesting way. He would talk about, think about if you have to fix a broken pocket watch, right? Like fixing a broken pocket watch that is a problem that is complicated because really what that means is that given enough time, you could figure out how to fix that watch because there is one solution. You could go on YouTube. You can look at manuals. There's only a certain number of parts. They have to go together in a very particular way so that it was interesting because that, that is a complicated problem. But in many ways, that's viewed as being the simpler problem because there's a, a defined number of variables and there's essentially a right answer. There would also then be, he would talk about complex problems. And complex problems are really unknown or unknowable problems that are constantly going to change. That this is something where there could be a lot of different actors, a lot of different elements. There's not necessarily a right solution. And that time isn't going to be the dimension that's going to necessarily make you smarter. Because what's going to happen over time is that in a complex problem, time is going to make the problem change or evolve. This is why it is unknown or unknowable, because there's just either so many factors or it continues to shift. But I think as, as you think about it, or if you would hear them talk about it, this is a really good framework for how do you think about problems? How do you put resources against them and timelines against them? Because com really, if you think about it, right, complicated problems are going to be something that there's more of a right answer, we're going to be able to get to more quickly. Complex problems are going to be ones that maybe we don't ever solve them, and we just have to continue to work at them, or we have to understand that there's going to be a lot going on. But I've definitely here again, thought back about past work, where I think complex problems have been approached as complicated. And that we would take something that maybe was unknowable or take something that would constantly change, but approach it like there we could, at some point, put it all back together. Now, I think, and I, I mentioned this a little bit before, but I think one of the other things that I thought was really interesting and impressive was just how deliberate they are and clear they are about the involvement of leadership. 
Because in ADM, they're conscious about determining the level and nature of command involvement. And they really break down commander leadership involvement into three different levels of engagement. The first one is where the commander leads the team. They facilitate the discussion, the discourse, and really are engaged throughout the effort. So they are a part of the team the entire time. The second one is where the commander will request and sanction the activity, but is really mostly kind of disengaged from the process, except perhaps at the start or at key checkpoints. So again, they're going to come in, they're going to say, this is something we need to be able to do, but they're just going to sort of keep an eye on it. And then the last one is one where the commander comes in and out of the process. And I think, you know, they're involved periodically or at various points throughout the effort. Um, but again, I think that it's, and again, there's a bit of a distinction between two and three. I think two is a little bit more keeping it a high level, doing the occasional check-in. I think the third one is, again, they're going to bounce in and out a little bit more or maybe be involved in a few more of the meetings, not just sort of get the executive summary version that you would get in the second version of that. But I think beyond that, they're also very clear around making sure that the leadership has discussed and thought about the risks of limited involvement and the risks of too much involvement. Because I think that they really understand that limited commander involvement poses a risk really to the benefits of ADM. And that ADM honestly may go unrealized and the outcomes might not have that much impact because it's one of those things where if you don't have a leader's perspective, if you don't have them pushing the thinking to create focus, and again, a lot of this is dependent on the team, the personalities, the problem you're trying to solve, but essentially, if you're not involved enough, then you have to understand that there's a risk that you might not get a good solution or you might not get a solution that you think is viable. But, and like most creative things, it's all about balance. There's also a risk of too much involvement because with too much involvement from the commander, you can also pose a risk to how effective ADM is. And important issues to recognize around this is they really will talk about the influence a commander has over his or her staff, that they have the potential to really to dampen or to be able to discourage people from talking, that, again, they may be, they're providing too many ideas, they're providing too many interpretations up front, it really is, and again, I think you see as a lot of business cases, they want them to be aware that their title and their position has influence and that people will disproportionately look at their ideas or listen to their ideas over the rest of the team. And so I think it it's something you see some leaders do, but I think it's just, it's deliberate in it and it's calling out the fact that you have to strike a balance. And I think it also empowers their teams to be a part of that discussion and to be able to, to talk about what is working well or when are they leaning in too far. Because, look, I think especially from a leader's side, sometimes it's just really hard to know. It's hard, like you may be reading the tea leaves or guessing, and you think you're being helpful and you're really not. But, again, it's interesting that in such a hierarchical command and control structure, things like this are in there. The fifth thing is, I, again, I think they really have taken the time to look at the difference between awareness and mastery in ADM. Because if you roll out something like ADM, it is complicated. And so what they've done is, and again, you can see it in the show notes, there's one version that's more high level. Think about this for generals and commanders where they need to understand ADM, but it's more focused on the benefits. It's more focused on what is this going to do? What are the outcomes you're going to get? Yes, there is some part of the process in there, 
but it, it has a very different tone and very different focus than the more other one, the other more detailed version they have. And this is for commanders and the teams who use it every day. And I think some of this maybe see this as an executive summary versus the working team. But I, I think that it's more than that, because I think that this isn't just about. I, I think that what they're doing is they're creating an expectation at all levels that this has value that this needs to be understood, that you need to know the basics, but also go a bit beyond that. Don't just learn the buzzwords. Don't just understand that. That in, even in leadership, at all levels of leadership, you have an understand, you have a, I don't know what it would be, I, I guess almost just a responsibility to understand your role in it, your impact on it, the value of it, how you can add to it, how you can screw it up, how you can do a lot of these sort of things. And so again, it's just, it's interesting, and I think especially in this case, because since you are dealing with non, I guess, quote unquote, people who would describe themselves as creative, to I, I think that to me is where a lot of this comes from, because it is so interesting to watch them deal with this. That's what these issues are around, is around balance and creativity, but they just come at it from a, such a different, interesting angle. I think partially because they're not caught up in being, quote unquote, creative. And the last thing I think was interesting is that they really look at how Everyone doesn't have to be a part of everything. And I think one, this is one of the benefits of the RME's hierarchy is that it allows them to run more efficiently, in some cases, better than I think a lot of companies out there. Now, I think this isn't just because they're hierarchy or because if you're given an order or something to do, you have to do it. But I think if you, again, look at the military structure and go all the way back to whenever people are indoctrinated and brought into military service, a lot of what it is is really about how do you strip people down? How do you give them the ability to think about themselves and others? It really is about trust. Because what they're, what basic training is doing is functionally creating great teams. That if you talk to a lot of soldiers, what they're going to say is that they don't just fight for themselves, but more than anything, they fight for the brother or sister next to them. They fight so that they can get home. They fight for them so that they're sure that they're you know doing the right thing and taking care of them. That's the hallmark of a great team. That's the hallmark of trust. And I know this is a theme I keep coming back to all the time, but it's because I do think it is such the foundation of such a great team. But I, I think that whenever you're able to look at their documentation, whenever you're able to look at all of this and then take a step back, in many cases, it's interesting because while I see so much other documentation, so much other training around the design thinking space, is there to really try to help facilitate and get people to understand how to trust each other. And I just think it's notable or interesting how much of that is missing here because trust is just assumed. Trust is a part of what they do. Trust is what they need to do to be successful. It's just baked into their mindset. So again, it's interesting because it's actually something that isn't a part of their process. But I think its absence to me was just something that kind of made my brain itch over a little bit of time. And it was just sort of interesting. But just a, a couple like final thoughts here. So I, I would, I think if, if any of this intrigued you, if there are a few sort of interesting nuggets in there, look, download that the textbook that I have up in the show notes, take a look at it and see what you think. But I think one of the big things for me here is that it's a good reminder for me. And I think for everybody else, you can always find inspiration in new and really unexpected places that's going to give you a new perspective if you just leave yourself open to it. That I think a lot of us get very hung up on where we get our inspiration from or what that needs to look like or what that needs to be. And that sometimes for me, the most impactful and the most interesting inspiration has come out of places that nobody would have ever thought to look. And I think that's probably why it's been so interesting and impactful because 
it's allowed me to think and operate in a way that was different from everybody else who is just going to the same, you know, five articles every day on LinkedIn or whatever it is. But I think it's also interesting the fact that the Army is using design thinking. Honestly, once again, I would argue shows the power and impact of design, how it can change any organization that whenever, again, you're looking at an, or an organization like the U.S. military that is saying we need to think differently. And as a result, we are going to turn to design really should be a wake up call to all of us for the, the power and the opportunity that we are all presented with every day. And again, I'll post the textbooks and I'll post the information about ADM in the show notes. But like I said, if you want to go into deeper in that, there's a lot more detail. There's a lot more sort of interesting insights there to be found. But like I said, it's just, it's really always interesting to me to look at other teams because I think so much of it for me isn't just in the information. It's in the context. It's in the understanding. It's in the different perspective. And I think that's something for all of us that's just something that's really good to be able to stay open to. So, as always, like I said, you can find the textbook, all the show notes, all that stuff. Just head over to thecrazyone.com. Do me a favor. Do me a favor. Do me a favor. Take a minute. And while you're you're on your podcast platform the next time, leave me a review. Just hit the stars. Write a couple words. Let people know what you think. Always brings people to the show. And especially now that we're back up and running. And we are actually in three days celebrating the six-year anniversary of this show. Do me a favor. Get me a present. Leave me a review. And then finally, I say it every time because I mean it every time. Actually, you know what? Before, oops, sorry, sorry. Everybody down in legal just started screaming. I have to remember, everybody down in legal wants to remind you that the views here, and even though I'm not currently employed, that all the views here are my own. They don't represent any of my former employers. Um, these are just my own personal thoughts and reportings. But finally, here we go. I say it every time because I mean it every time, but thank you for your time. I know time is the only real luxury any of us have. I'm always incredibly humbled. You want to spend any of it with me. So, go out, surprise yourself. Let the U.S. Army inspire you about how to design and think about things a little bit differently. And while you do it, and as always, stay crazy.